Um, I was just before church felt the Lord was saying to us, um, actually this week I was reading some prophecies that God had spoken over Red Hill, and interestingly this morning in the prayer down there, someone brought up the, prop, the prophetic word that was spoken over Red Hill. One of, the, one of the prophetic words, the most recent one that Jimmy and Gina spoke over us when they were here, was that we are a living picture of resilience. Okay? Now, sometimes when we, when we hear prophecies, we want to hear words that are like earth-shattering. And go now and you will find one million dollars waiting for you, whatever. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. So, so I, I, I remember the word resilience, and I thought, wow, that's, that's a, it's a cool word, but it didn't really shake me. So I uh, looked it up. So resilience is incredible. Because it is, Abram was described as being resilient when he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Please listen to this. This is so cool. This is so God. And I'm aware that so many of us go through stuff, circumstances in our lives right now that, that do not seem to line up with the promises or the kingdom. But it's real. True. Somebody here with me with that? It's real. Our circumstances are real. So resilience cannot actually become a thing without reality. Okay? And so when we talk about our faith as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, our faith, like James says in chapter 2, without action is, is dead. It's, it's, it's nothing. It doesn't shape anything. And sometimes faith and being a Christian in Jesus Christ, sometimes, I don't know how people say this, but sometimes it just becomes like an abstract thing that people can't really put their finger on. But resilience is reality filled with hope. That's why we sang hope is alive in us this morning. You think we just randomly pull things out of a hat? (laughs) Hope. Reality plus hope. Equals resilience. If you take one of those out of the equation, you're just gritting your teeth. You're not really resilient. You're not engaged in perseverance, which is one of the predominant encouragements to the church in the New Testament by Paul, the apostle, to persevere, to persevere, to persevere. And if you're not in hope in your reality, you just will be swallowed up literally by your reality and it will become who you are and it will become your identity and if you've, not, if you've not cultivated that hope, the thing, about, the thing about hope, if you look at hope in Scripture, hope is, 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 is encapsulated in a person, Jesus. We know that, Jesus. Faith, hope, and love remains. Hope is one of that, those three things that remain. When everything is kind of said and done in every scenario in our lives, when we come to the end of everything, we've, 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 we've thought it through a thousand times, we've acted wrongly, we've gone our own way, we thought we'd do what, what was right. At the end of it all, when it's all said and done, faith, hope, and love. Resilience is reality plus hope. So I want to say to you, Red Hill, people came from the outside and that's what they saw here. So I want to shout to you, persevere. Persevere. Because resilience is, 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 is something that is, that is shaped. And in a world that we live in today, you know that very well, people are without hope. People struggle to to have hope. Or they have hope, but it's in the wrong thing. And the other side of the coin in in the religious part of society is people have superficial spirituality. They think they're in faith, but they're not in faith. 
So they take what is real, the reality, and they super spiritualize it. Does that make sense? This is so important for us. So we don't have to walk around and say, no, I'm not sick. No, I'm not in lack. No, my relationships are perfect. No, I'm not in need at all. I'm great. I'm amazing. And misunderstand that as Jesus command to us to walk by faith. That's not what faith means. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, yet believed God who made a promise. Without seeing the promise fulfilled. Hence, chapter 11 of Hebrews, many of those dudes died without seeing the promise fulfilled, but at the end of the chapter, summarized, they died in faith. The world says the exact opposite to us. Don't be bamboozled by the world. You won't need perseverance. We don't want to change the, 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 the study, the character of our God. You know? And it's not, a, it's not a popular thing to say, but sometimes when it's hard, when it's hard you, you, you're probably in the exact place where God wants you to be. Face the reality filled with the hope of a living Savior seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for you and my enemies to become His footstool. He has overcome death, sin, hell, the grave. I've just doubled all those things. He, is, he has overcome. And we, if we are in Him, then we are that. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh. Keep going, amazing people. Acts chapter 19, let's go there. Let me just see, how many of you read Acts chapter 19 this week? Grandma Mary, proceed straight to heaven. Do not pass. (laughs) (laughs) Collect all thousand heaven bucks. Where's Acts? Acts is in the Bible somewhere. And I didn't bring glasses. Okay. Acts 19. So, this is Paul in Ephesus. And uh, I'm going to just read the chapter, do a little historical blurb about it, and then lift out three things that I feel the Lord is saying to us for a ch- as a church. You ready? Yeah. You ready? Acts chapter 19. Please read with me on your device or on your Bible. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. So Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Say repentance, please. Repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Verse 7. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively, about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. Obstinate. And they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. In the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I'm trying to think of whether I should just tell you quickly. I'll just tell you quickly. Tyrannus wasn't, a, wasn't anybody. He was, like a, he was like a public speaker that had a hall. He was like a teacher, like a lecturer. And so they came out of the synagogue, out of the religious context, into the marketplace in a sense. 
And that's where Paul continued his ministry in Ephesus for a long time. Like a businessman opened the way for him. Just like Joseph of Arimathea created, you know, made a way for Jesus. Just like businessmen play such a big part of it. So he went into what we call today the third space. Not the home, not the church, the third space. And this went on, just, oh, just for interest sake. This is, and this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That is a massive statement. All the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Because Paul reasoned in the marketplace for two years. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their, and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. How many of you have ever experienced that, seen that, encountered that? Anybody? Someone praying over a handkerchief. I'm not talking about the scam artist selling holy water online. That's a hoax. Don't buy that water. It's bad. Okay. It's bad water. No matter who it is and no matter if it's from the Jordan. The Jordan has more bacteria than any other river in the world. Don't drink it, for goodness sake. And we'll have to really pray for you for healing. <laughs> but this, this handkerchief of Paul, I looked at that word just for interest's sake. It was, actually, it was actually like a sweatband that Paul would wear during the heat of the day over here. And, uh, and uh, that was the, that's what that handkerchief, it wasn't a cleanly iron folded little piece of cotton in your pocket. It was the sweaty, stinky headband that people would say they'd sometimes just throw it down. And it was part of a, a, a Jewish custom to throw it down just like they threw down their clothes in front of Jesus when he came into the city of Jerusalem. And they trusted that Paul did that. And their faith came alive in Paul's, in Paul's uh, ability to, to, to raise people from illness. And, and so they took that as a point of contact. And, 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 and by faith, the sick was healed. My granny used to do this, literally. She used to ask people sometimes to pray for a handkerchief. And when I went to the military... I can't believe I'm actually telling you this, guys. She sent me a little handkerchief that she'd been praying over years before my mom had kept. She was long dead. Anyway, luckily I didn't get shot, so the hanky worked. <laughs> so some Jews who went around driving out evil spirit tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, seven of them, and overpowered them all, so cool, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I love the gospel, so good. And when they became... <laughs> When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Because they realized there is no cheap silver bullet in the name of Jesus, if you are not in the name of Jesus. This morning downstairs, one of the things that came out was the sonship thing. Sonship, which is a, which is a spiritual reality for, for, for males and females, for sons and daughters. But for those who are in Christ, and not all of us are in Christ, it doesn't mean you're in Christ if you come to church. Just like you don't become a hamburger when you go to McDonald's. When you are in Christ, you carry an authority on your life as a son. You are an heir, and you are a co-heir with Christ. And that authority is a very real thing. It's not a magic wand. But in the name of Jesus, it's only real when you are in Him. Seated in Him in heavenly places. When that's a reality, and so much so that it shapes your culture and your life. 
and it leaves a very clear, distinct uh, impact. So many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burnt them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, uh, the total came to 50,000 drachma, which is like 250 trillion dollars. And this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I, um, after I have been there, he said, I must, I must visit Rome. And boom, here's the first mention of the word Rome, which is Paul's ultimate desire. He wants to get to Rome. And this is the first time it's mentioned. So it's the introduction of his pilgrimage to Rome, where he, you know, guys, he ended up. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So that little longer was actually one year. Two years is, is, is mentioned, but he says a little longer. And if you look at it historically, Paul stayed for three years in Ephesus. Just for interest's sake. About that time, there arose, arose a great disturbance about the way. If you see the way, it's talking about those who are following Jesus because there was no clear script at that time. There was no clear, there was a very, very alive, very functional church, a body of believers that had totally surrendered their lives their possessions, their dreams and visions, and completely surrendered their lives to Jesus as a result were walking in such miraculous power because of their utter and complete surrender that they, that they were shaping something that they probably didn't know what to call. And the world didn't know what to call them either. So they called them Christians, which means those who are like Jesus Christ. And then they called them the way. They were just doing this thing called the way. They were on the way. And so a silversmith named Demetrius it made silver shrines to, uh, to Artemis, brought in uh, no little business of, uh, um, of the craftsmen. And he called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we, we receive a good income from, from this business. And you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led a stray large number of the people here in Ephesus and in, uh, uh, in practice practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There's danger not only in that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world and will, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Never worship a god who can be robbed. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar, and the people seized Gaius and, and, and Artaracus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed the man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials in the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to go into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another thing, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there. <coughs> it's such a cool line. And so the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Can you imagine? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus... Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus 
is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not to do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls and they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of uh, the day's events. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this uh, commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. It's a lovely chapter, isn't it? Chapter. Everybody awake? Okay. So, I'm going to try and take it line by line. Paul arrives in Ephesus and finds some of John's disciples and then prays for them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit because they'd not heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and hence his question, then what were you baptized into? Because the water baptism is a baptism unto repentance, and we're going to look a little bit about that, about that later. But to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, friends, is really, for me, the, the, inner, like the inner essence of being able to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit of, the Spirit of God, being baptized with the Spirit of God, is, 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 is a very real, dramatic thing. And the Holy Spirit is equated to the, to the uh, Aramaic word uh, dunamos, which is the English word dynamite. It is a powerful reality. And so for us, who, for, for some of us m- might have just heard that when you come to Christ, you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, and you turn from your sin, and you become a follower of Jesus, and you are baptized in water. But if you don't know, because the world does not know about the Holy Spirit, the world does not know. People don't know in the world that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit is the thing that, that, that baptizes us and fills us and gives us the ability to follow Jesus, to hear his voice. And um, Matthew 12, verse 34 says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the reason I read that scripture is because what happened to these disciples when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and in fact, every single time in the book of Acts when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens, okay, I'm going to go very quickly about these things, but if you want to ask me about any of these things afterwards, please feel free, okay, please can do that. But every single time the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was followed by two major things. One was tongues, the gift of tongues, and second was prophecy. So they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Now, some people have said in the past that speaking in tongues is proof that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't really know if it is proof that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't really know. I genuinely, I just genuinely don't know. Can't stake my claim on it. But I can say that it is a seal of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says it is a seal. Now, that word seal, I studied, it is the, it is the, it is the Aramaic word for... for um, now, I don't have my glasses and I can't believe it. Sorry, um, I can't find it. But it doesn't matter. Sealed. Um, pardon me, God. Ugh, never mind. I think it's a bore. Whatever. Who's going to go and look it up anyway, right? So, but the word is this. It's like, I'll tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, I was downtown Toronto. There's a great consignment store there. It's called Fashionably Yours. Nikki knows about it. 
Those who know, know. Anyway, I went there. They had a pair of Dolce & Gabbana boots. Okay? I looked up the Dolce & Gabbana boots. I needed winter boots. I had no winter boots. I was walking around with my sneakers like this. So they had these boots there. They were amazing. They were secondhand. So that's, that's the way to go. Look, I, I, I looked online. This boots, Dolce & Gabbana came up. The boots cost $1,100. Okay? Online, brand new. But in the consignment store, they were 120 bucks. How many of you would not buy that? Don't judge me. Okay. A few of you wouldn't buy that because you're not men and you don't wear size 10. But for the rest of us... Anyway, what I had on me was 10 bucks. I had 10 bucks on me. So I went to the guy in the front. I said, dude, I really like these boots. What's the deal with them? He says, like, they just came in. They'll be gone soon because it's beginning of winter. I'm like, I need a pair of boots. Please, can you hold them for me? He's like, uh, they just came in. I'm like, okay, I'll give you... I've got 10 bucks. He says, sure, I'll keep them for you. 10 bucks. Put down my 10 bucks. He took the boots. He put them in the back room. Okay? I couldn't, I couldn't go and get them for six months. All right? <laughs> anyway, about three months into it, I remember, hey, I've got these boots on hold. <laughs> I called the guy. I'm like, hey, dude, I left these boots three months. He's like, yes, what's the deal, dude? I'm like, dude, I'm coming for them, okay? Don't sell them. Don't sell them. You know, six months later, I got there. <laughs> Wait, consignment stores work like this. If they don't sell after three months, the price drops by 25%. So instead of 120, I paid like 85. It wasn't my strategy. I didn't even know that. But, okay, let me cut the story short right there. I bought the boots. They're amazing. If you see them, comment on them. <laughs> that is what that word seal means. It means I've placed, I've, I've committed myself to you and I am coming back for you. And in the meantime, no one else may have you. No one else can take your, your heart. Your heart is mine. That seal, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, friends, the gift of tongues. It does say in 1 Corinthians 12 that some received the gift of tongues. And that has caused this debate. But I want to tell you right now, everything that comes from God is good. And there is no reason, without a doubt, in my mind, having followed Jesus for 40 years, that anybody should be afraid of the gift of tongues. There is a scripture that says, our father is so good, if his son comes to him and says, Dad, please can I have an egg? I'm starving. His son's not going God's not going to go with big scorpion behind his head. Eat that! No, he's going to give him what he asked for. Because everything we do, believe, and practice in our lives today is based on the goodness of our God. The character of our God is good and is always good. Therefore, every gift that he promises us, and the gift of tongues, and the gift of the prophetic, are two gifts that are always mentioned. Don't read it. With the outpouring of the Spirit. Done. Done. Everything, any other subsequent doctrine has come after these scriptures. And therefore is rooted in one thing only. Fear. Fear. You do not have to fear the gift of tongues. Yeah, but what if I... Because in Jamaica, the Rastafarians, they speak in tongues too. I can tell you now, it's not a godly tongue. I've heard, I have a Rasa friend who speaks in, tongue, in tongues. And, it's, and he's completely, he's not a follower of Jesus. He mixes the whole thing in. And so it's brought this fear and trepidation among some of my friends in the islands. What if I receive a false tongue 
Friends, if your heart is for the things of God and awakened by the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you, what happens is you receive this gift of tongues. If you do not know what the gift of tongues is, just for those of you who don't have any idea, let me just tell you quickly what it is. When I was a little boy, I was in a conference once. There was about 20,000 people. My mom and dad were following Jesus. It was in Johannesburg, just outside Johannesburg. And there were people from every nation, tribe, and tongue represented in this place. In a crowd of 20,000, I was a little boy. I was completely overwhelmed. But I was so aware of God's presence in the place. So aware. And I can't remember exactly how this happened. But there was a Zulu lady who ran from the back. Have I told the story before you? Ran from the back. And I remember this clearly because I was sitting on the aisle and she ran past us. She was a big Zulu woman. She was running down the aisle, 20,000 people, running down the aisle, praying in tongues. Okay? And wow, I was like, wow, this is hysterical. She ran onto the stage and uh, the guy who was leading took her, gave her the mic, and she started to pray a, prof- a, 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 a word in tongue over South Africa. And while she was praying, this is a big Zulu woman praying in tongues. I knew it wasn't Zulu because I know a little bit of Zulu and this was not Zulu. Another lady, two aisles down, started running down the aisle onto the stage. A guy came up, helped her up onto the stage and she grabbed another mic and the guy on stage, thank God he was, he was, he was aware of what was going on. He, he gave the mic to the, to the lady. She was a German lady from Berlin. and This lady was a Zulu lady from, uh, from, from Zululand. And she was speaking, and as she was speaking, she was just, I will never forget this in my entire life, she was speaking, and this German lady next to her was was speaking in English to the crowd, but with a very obvious German accent. And before she started, she said, this lady is speaking high German, and this is what she's saying. And she started to interpret in English, and English, and English. Guys, the oohs, and the ooh, the 20,000 people, mesmerized, On their knees. Why? The Holy Spirit manifesting through a gift of tongues. Brings transformation and change. A prophetic word that came over our country. And I like to do that. I do believe that there are watershed moments in history and countries and geographic areas. I absolutely believe it. But what proceeded in South Africa from those days on, and it was before that too, was literally nothing short of an open heaven. God is moving mightily and powerful. Is there still a lot of trouble? Absolutely. Is the church very alive? Absolutely. Now I ask you the question, why on earth would we not want the gift of tongues? And just like with everything else in Scripture, we partner with, with Jesus. If you think God has done it all for you, you're absolutely right. He's done it all for you. But the manifestation where it shapes and becomes something is when we believe that and partake in that. Participate in that. We participate in that. We are resilient. I can't do this in my own strength, but my my hope is not in that. It's in Jesus and his completed work. So I step into it. That's called by faith. That's you literally walking on the water and you start to pray in tongues. You do it. You receive that gift from Jesus and you do it. It's a seal. He's coming back for you. Are you encouraged by that? Anybody? Okay. So... So Paul shows them that John never designed that water baptism is the last thing. And you know that how John spoke about Jesus, right? One after me is coming greater than me. His sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with what? What? Are you guys awake? 
baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That word fire has two meanings. Consuming love. Jesus Christ will come after John the Baptist and, and, and baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What are the two manifestations of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts? When they are filled with the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues and prophecy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there are many gifts of the Holy Spirit. The one that you should desire more than anything else is the gift of prophecy. You know, you could practice it as literally like a muscle. And the more, more confident you become in the gift of prophecy, some of you have a prophetic inclination. It's a motivational reality in your life. You were gifted with the ability to see black and white in life. You need to exercise that gift. You need to take it seriously because your life is not your own. It is not for you. It is for the body. Remember, the body is not for the gift. The gift is for the body, which is rooted in the reality of the fact that we do not live for ourselves. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. And we surrender. It's only in that place of surrender and submission that we truly come into authority. The devil is not afraid of screaming people, like I'm screaming right now, sorry. The enemy does not shudder when we shout. And if you say, oh, I believe in Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't give you any authority in Jesus, in Jesus' name, because the Bible says in James that even the devil believes in the name of Jesus and shudders. Okay? So to be open to everything that Jesus has for you is the beginning place of all things. So the, the, the other thing that the Holy Spirit does, it's this, the seal of the Holy Spirit in us, is the, is the influence to, to, towards sh, uh, sanctification. If you have no desire to, be, to get closer to, to Jesus Christ, friends, let me tell you, you need to stop as soon as possible and cultivate a space where you can invite the Holy Spirit. Because He's in pursuit of you. He's in pursuit of you. And you seek him, you will find him. But most of us just are too busy. Most of us just don't, don't, have, don't want to make the time to pursue the Holy Spirit. And the, the sad reality of that is that there is no desire for more of God. That's proof that the Spirit of God is not living in you. You have desire for pragmatism and, and, and optimization. You want to do better. You want to get more done. None of those are actually ever in Scripture outside of the context of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God. And that's a wonderful promise he gives us. So it's a seal. The sanctifying influence of the Spirit of God. If your hunger and your desires for the things of the world, it's plain. The New Testament is plain about that. You could go there and you can continue to feed yourself and satisfy you there. And simultaneously, you will never be satisfied by that. Ever, ever, ever. More and more and more and more and more and more. And that's why we live in a society that's addicted. But if you stop that and you choose, I believe faith comes after choice. Some theologians don't agree with me, but I believe in that. And N.T. Wright, thank God, believes in that. I like him a lot. So you choose, and then you have faith. Like the prodigal son sat in the pig, in the pig pen. He sat in the pig pen. The father did not find him in the pig pen. The father waited on the stoop and went, waited for the son, looking for the son, longing to see the son, but did not intervene in the pig pen. What had to happen? It's actually in Scripture. It says these words. He came to his senses. And what happened when he came to his senses? He chose. He chose. I will not access that. I will not go there. I will not allow myself that. I will not just be free for my own right. My life is no longer my own. At that point, we walk into authority. When he, when he chose, his heart changed. And what did he say? I will go back to my dad and I'll say, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be, just be your slave. Let me just be your servant. Do you think the father would ever even let those words over his mouth? He would not do it. When he saw him, he ran towards him and embraced him. 
And that will never, ever, ever change. But I must say to you, friends, there is a point. Okay? I'm saying this loosely, so please don't throw anything at me. Judas Iscariot came to a place, Dallas Willard speaks about this in Renovation of the Heart a little bit, where he could no longer choose to turn back to Jesus. And what happened to him? Even when he had changed his mind, his heart would not change. And he ended up killing himself. Death and destruction. I do believe there is a place. And hear me out. This is very important. You have to choose before faith comes. Abraham faced the fact his body was as good as dead. And then he chose. Moses walked. He saw the burning bush. He could have just walked. But he turned. When he chose to turn, God spoke to him. There were many burning bushes in those days. For interest's sake. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart like Israel did in the, in the, promise, in the, in the, in the wilderness and never came into the promise. An entire generation died in the wilderness. I believe we are called to the promise, to live in the promise. I really do believe that. Where am I now? Okay, so... I don't know what to say now. Okay, so... So let's, let's jump... So that's... I didn't want to spend that so long there. Al, give me some more water. Please. Let's jump to the seven sons of Sceva. So the seven sons of Sceva... You know, there's a scripture in James that says... Um, um, let me just ask, how many of you have ever prayed for someone who were possessed by a, a, a demon? A demon. Great. That's amazing. I'm not going to ask how many of you drove the demon out, but I pray that it's all of us. All of us have done that. And in uh, in South Africa, obviously there are a lot of tribal tribalism, and um, we we used to go into Zululand quite a lot. And thank you, my brother. Um, So I want to I want to just jump down a little bit to. There was a time when, um, because it ties in so well with the sons of Sceva, when, when Paul was speaking, there was a bunch of guys who heard the gospel and turned from that stuff and brought all their witchcraft paraphernalia and made a big bonfire with that. And uh, the, presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit has the ability in us, has the ability in us to bring everything that we've placed our lives confidence in. Even the cool, clinical, sweet things that we control, but they're still opposite to the things of the, of the kingdom of God. We think we're in control of them, but they're not. They have leverage over us. To bring all those things voluntarily to a place where we make an end of them. We were actually in Mozambique. This was a Mozambique one, the biggest bonfire we ever had, which was super gnarly. Kia, Kia Taylor and I, witch doctor, village, Preached the gospel. Lots of people got saved. The witch doctor, very, very aggressive towards us, chanting. Uh, no, this was Zululand. Sorry, this was Zululand. So that night, we, we preached outside. We were worshipping. The witch doctor sitting in the rain. One of the girls took a blanket, put over the witch doctor in the rain, right? Chanting his drum against our meetings. That's one simple act of kindness, which I wasn't even aware of. Turned this guy's heart. The next night, he got saved there. The next morning, we had a bonfire outside his hut that he decided to do. This guy was the Sangoma of the area, the witch doctor of the area, carried everything else, everything, little skulls, I don't know if they were monkeys or whatever they were, tons and tons of skin, scrolls, demonic stuff, potions, snakes, skins and stuff, lit it all on fire, and we were all dancing 
around this fire as he was dancing like a crazy madman around this fire with us and was completely and instantly healed. That's exactly what happened right there in Acts chapter 19 with Paul. All these guys with their, witch, witch, with their witchcraft stuff. Now to relate that back to, to the sons of Sceva. When Kian and I went into that hut of that witch doctor, I'll be brutally honest with you, I was very glad that Kia was there. Because it was so intimidating. It was a very real, tangible presence of evil. This is what the demon asked the seven sons of Sceva. Jesus, I know. And I've heard about Paul. But who are you? So I want to ask you the question. It's a weird question, but I just thought of it. I thought it would be cool. Does the devil know your name? When you speak, does the enemy shudder? Does he, does, is he aware of a different authority, the authority of God? Is he? When we went into that place, I said, Lord, I cannot come into this place. I cannot play games with this stuff. I have no authority in this place other than in you, Jesus. I place no confidence in my ability to communicate with this guy because he's Zulu, I'm not. And I cannot do anything else but stand here in the full authority of Jesus. This was preceded by a radical act of love. So I, I don't even have credit to take for it. When someone put a blanket over this guy when he was freezing cold. Yet the authority of Jesus Christ and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit brought that man to a place where he chose Jesus. He was not manipulated. He was not sweet talk. There was no E minus seventh playing in the background. He realized, I'm in darkness. I need to be in the light. We carried that out. And while this fire was burning and this man dancing around the fire, I was literally at the end of myself emotionally. I was completely and utterly overjoyed. Why? Because Jesus Christ set him free. And that's what happened to the sons of Sceva. They thought they could use the name of Jesus as a kind of a, uh, like a, what is it, like a, like a, potion, like a chant, like a, like a funny thing. And for me, the premise is very clear about the sons of Sceva. James, number one, submit yourself to the Lord. Then, resist the devil. Then, he will flee. Not give it a shot in the dark. No, submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Pat prayed it this morning downstairs. He's the king. That's why we call him Lord. He is truly the Lord of my life. That's why Paul in 2.20 Galatians says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. He loves me and gave himself for me. So that place of submission is, equally, is equal to the place of authority. In every area of your life. The authority to, over demons belong only to Jesus. Acts, Luke 8.28. And there's so many scriptures I have here. Um, yes. So the question is, does the enemy know your name? There's no power in incantations, even if they include the name of Jesus. The power belongs to Jesus and him alone over the demonic realm. The demonic realm... It's not something that we, uh, that we mock about either. There's a scripture where, where uh, not Gabriel, who's the other? Michael said that um, he, was, he, was, he was fighting against a principality and uh, 
he says he did not have the um, he didn't have the confidence to, to 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 even speak badly about these deities. But he but he did say, but the Lord rebukes you. This is the archangel Michael. Daniel, like I said last week, while cultivating the inner culture of his identity in Jesus, bowing down at the sure at the sure reality of falling into persecution, was visited by Gabriel, who took how many days? 21 days to fight the prince of Persia until he got there. So it's not like, you know, like, wow, we're super cocky about these things. But it does speak of our submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, So I want to speak here about these guys that brought all their things out and just deal with what I feel Paul is dealing with in Acts chapter 19, which is repentance. Repentance, please say it with me. It means thinking differently. That's what it means, all right? So, so, and there are several contexts. The, the Greek word for repentance means to ch- change the, the, the thought pattern, which is very linked to the scripture in Romans. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not conformed. Confirmation is, is, is like a stamp, like a plastic mold that stamps you and it creates like a little ducky or whatever the case is. Squashed into the world. The pervasive culture of the world that we live in has that ability to squash us and do more. Transformation of the mind comes through the scripture and the God of the scripture being revealed to us and then we think differently and we are able to change our minds. Right? The, uh, the, 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 the Aramaic word for repentance is turn around basically. You walk this way, now you're walking this way. It's very much related to, to our will and our desire. And so repentance is not an emotional, it's not an emotion. Okay? It is, it is a choice. And, and, and like I said right in the beginning, our faith is activated after we've exercised this choice. Now your will might be at a place where you're super dead, and hence our dis- absolute um, dependence on community to live together. So we could speak with love and truth into each other's lives and help each other transition into these areas where we really need to repent, think think differently, or even turn around. So if you want to live for Jesus and live for yourself, um, the the Bible in uh, in James as well, wow, I should have just preached out of James, calls you a double-minded man. And uh, the word for double-minded is the word to live in two realities. And the consequence of living in two realities is that you're completely unstable. Your life is always in chaos. How, where do we see this? Acts 19. At the end of it all, the, Ephesus was an absolute riot because they, they want a part of Paul now. They see this in Jesus. But they want Artemis and, Artemis and all their, their curios and their money and their livelihood is being threatened. But Paul is saying here, there's one, Jesus Christ. Choose. Turn around. Follow him. Repent. And as a result, some of these guys brought their stuff, their paraphernalia out, worth thousands and thousands of dollars. You can go and study how much it was worth and had a massive bonfire there. So we don't want to be those who are unstable. It doesn't say in some of your ways. It says in all your ways. It is an uncontainable reality. You understand what I mean? You cannot contain that in one area of your life. If you are not completely following and pursuing the things of God, the Bible calls you double-minded and you will be unstable in all your ways. It's chaos. And so, repentance. The wonderful reality of the prodigal son getting up and going to the father, thinking differently. And what happens with the father? The father embraces him. Same with us. Same with us. So as we look at Paul's, Paul's reality here um, in Acts 19, we see... There's a baptism of repentance right at the beginning. 
We're concluding with that now. Preceded by a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which releases the power of the Spirit into us, manifest mostly through gift of tongues and, the, and, the, and prophecy. And then Paul confronting the, 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 the... Arguments will never happen, but by the power of the Spirit moves, moves into this Ephesian culture and brings the reality of the good news of Jesus. Then those who wanted to take some of this and use it for their advantage were beaten up and ran away naked and bleeding. And then Paul brings a group of people to repentance that changed and turned around, brought all their paraphernalia and burnt it. And as a result of it, the entire Asia Minor heard the word of Jesus in that, from that city. Isn't that amazing? Amen.